Hello everyone, 7 Investing CEO Simon Erickson here, and thank you for listening to the 7 Investing Podcast. Our podcast is made possible by our subscribers, who allow us to empower you to invest in your future each and every month. In exchange, we give our subscribers exclusive access to our monthly stock market recommendations from each of our lead advisors. To support this podcast and join other 7 Investing fans in our exclusive subscribers forum, where we discuss the latest market moves in real time, go to 7investing.com slash subscribe to subscribe to 7investing today. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our 7investing podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more about our long-term investing approach and see all seven of our monthly stock market recommendations each and every month at 7investing.com. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm very excited to welcome my guest to the program today. Aisha Tarek is the co-founder of the Macro Advisor Group. She's based in Dubai and has got a very, very good feel on what's going on internationally, which is going to introduce a lot of our American-based investors to a different global opportunity. Uh, Aisha, it's really nice to have you part of the program. Thanks for being on the 7 Investing Podcast. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for having me. I mean, this is great. I've followed you for a long time. I follow what you do. I think you have an excellent business model. It's so interesting. Seven picks every month. So I, I love it. And in my heart, I'm still an analyst for stocks, right? So I, I absolutely love it. I've been a fan of yours for years as well, too, actually. We, we chatted for several years as well. It's really nice to have you on the program here today. We'll talk a little bit about stocks. I do want to chat about a, a couple companies that are on your radar that you're interested in, but let's start kind of 10,000 foot level, right? Macrovisor is named so because you guys have a feel on what's going on in the macro economy out there. And it's not even just a US-based perspective, but a truly global perspective. Uh, first and foremost, can you tell me a little bit about your company, why you've started and co-founded this and what you really hope to achieve out of it? Right. So uh, this company is co-founded with my partner, Markets for Mayhem, as you know him on uh, Twitter. Now, the both of us, we sort of loved tracking all the data that came out of the macro, right? And I started off writing a newsletter and I, I saw that, you know, there is an audience for the macro as well. And what was most interesting was not a lot of people actually know what goes on behind the data. So I know for the last one year, macro has become very important. Everybody's looking at the macro. Everybody's looking at the jobs numbers. But, you know, two years ago, two, two and a half years ago, when I started writing, not a lot of people understood what went into these job numbers, right? To be fair, neither did I, okay? Because we look at the numbers, we look at the headlines, but we don't look at the details. Um, so I started looking at the details. And part of my learning process has always been to try and explain things to other people. That's a good way to learn, right? So sometimes I'll sit my daughter down even and try and explain things to her, whether she understands it fully or not. She's, she's smart. She gets it. But, you know, I, I enjoy doing this. I, I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. Even when I was in banking, I would train all the junior associates and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I started to dig into the data, learn myself. And whatever I had learned during the week, I would write about it on the weekend. And this is concerning the macro data. So I'd pick one data point and, you know, sort of go into it. And then I met Mayhem on Twitter and I saw that both of us have this real, you know, love for, you know, looking at the macro data and what's going on. 
And it wasn't just the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. is the best because they have the most detailed set of data. Globally, you don't have all that detail, but it's still a lot of fun to look at how markets are doing all over the world, right? And so we decided, you know what? Let's bring this to a larger audience and let's make it fully macro-focused, but macro of the world. We do cover companies. We do cover earnings as well because they do move the market. But at the end of the day, we like to look at the overall picture. And just to be clear, Aisha, it's nice chatting with you here in person, or at least on Zoom person. Mayhem is a human being, right? He is not a humanoid AI robot. Is that correct? Well, he's part human being. <laughs> Good to know. Okay. Just to confirm, just wanted to make sure I understood. Um, yeah. Let's let's double click on a couple of the data behind the numbers, like you just mentioned, because we've seen a lot of shocks to the system in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. We had we had COVID, and then that kind of put a lot of free money into the economy, and then now we've seen interest rates rising incredibly quickly. What is your broad based take on what is going on with the global macro, and what are a couple of things we really should be watching? So, for one thing, obviously we're all watching interest rates, right? and how they're changing in different parts of the world. So let's take, for example, the developed markets versus the emerging markets. Now, surprisingly, the emerging markets actually started hiking rates much sooner than the developed markets. I think it was because inflation started to go up higher in the emerging markets. So just to take a step back, emerging markets tend to be more sensitive to, you know, the outside world. So inflation numbers, the dollar being strong and stuff like that, because obviously they aren't a dollar-based economy. So when prices started to go up and particularly oil prices, commodity prices, this kind of hit the emerging markets much harder than they hit the developed markets. The, the pace at which inflation went up in the developed markets were actually slightly slower than the emerging markets. And the emerging markets are familiar with inflation. They've seen it. We, we've had certain levels of inflation in the emerging world, right? So I come from an emerging market country. I come from Bangladesh. We've always seen a certain level of inflation. It's never been 2%, right? So in that context, they knew what to do. They knew how to respond. And they knew that we, they needed to hike rates and they needed to hike rates fast. Where the U.S. and the Eurozone and the U.K. are concerned, they've been having such low rates for such a long time. And each have their own issues, obviously. The U.S. was a little bit scared, I think, of hiking too soon because of what happened in 2018, 2019. So there's always this recency bias, right? Um, with the Eurozone, they have been at negative rates for so long with the UK negative rates, zero floor for so long that, you know, coming out of this era of such low rates, it took some guts. And they didn't really realize that inflation would, you know, uh, take hold so swiftly and go up so quickly. So by the time they started to hike the rate, it was already too late. Inflation had taken hold quite a bit. Like if you look at the UK, inflation is still going up there. It's so we, it's we mean the US, and I like to say we as well because uh, the Middle East, most of us, we are pegged to the dollar. So even our interest rates move in tandem with the US. Um, 
And all these countries who are pegged to the dollar plus the U.S., we, we've seen inflation sort of become disinflation now, right? The pace is slowing. We are seeing the curve turn down. However, in the UK, we're still seeing the curve, you know, on an upward trajectory. Slight turning down here and there, but, you know, nothing um, significant. So at the end of the day, I think this interest rate regime in each of these countries, they dictate a lot of policies. They have a big impact on the stock market as well. We've seen it in the last two days. We've seen what's happened with the interest rate and what happened with the stock market. As soon as we started to see the long end of the curve start to go up, we see stocks take a tumble. So while it works in different ways, there is still a very massive correlation between stocks and interest rates. So that's something that we're definitely watching all across the world. I think that if there's perhaps one man in America that is under the microscope all the time, it's Jerome Powell. It seems like there, he is always stuck between a rock and a hard place. If, you know, there's yes. one part that people are saying, oh, you've pushed interest rates up way too high. You know, this is just, are they ever going to stop? But then on the other hand, you know, he really has said out there that he wants to target 2% inflation, which has been very elusive and very challenging. What do you think is in the Fed's playbook going forward? Is he going to continue to push to get inflation down to 2% and do whatever it takes? Or is it time that... Maybe we, we've, we've raised rates enough and we're going to slow down a little bit here. So my, my personal view is that we still have one more quiver, uh, one more arrow in the quiver for all these three central banks. I think maybe for the UK, two. <laughs> so I see one more hike for the Fed, one more hike for the Eurozone, and two more hikes for the UK. Um, I know the emerging markets have already started to ease a little bit. We saw Chile cut rates. We saw Brazil cut rates. But with the developed markets, just as I said, inflation is still pretty high. And I am a little wary of what will happen in the next two months. I think we will see a little bit of a surge in inflation uh, for two reasons. One is because we are seeing commodity prices and energy prices go up. And then we are going to be out of the base effect. So basically the comparisons become, you know, um, I, I want to say easier, but what we will see is a, not a steep decline in inflation. So we might see inflation remain a little sticky. The other issue with the U.S., unfortunately, is the sensitivity to interest rates is a little low. What I mean by this is that We've seen technology, we've seen uh, a lot of industries that have moved away from the manufacturing side. So we have more service-based industries in the U.S., more technology, more less CapEx-heavy, uh, you know, uh, issues. And even the technology companies that are investing in CapEx, let's say, for example, Apple or Microsoft, these guys have deep pockets. So for them, interest rates and their big companies they're extremely well-rated. So even for them, even interest rates going up really doesn't affect them as such, right? It doesn't hit them the way it hits smaller companies, the way it hits manufacturing companies. We're seeing the manufacturing data come in horrible. <laughs> and um, so this is why it's taking much longer for the U.S. to be affected by the higher interest rate. Their sensitivity is lower. 
And the one industry that should have actually been very sensitive to interest rates, which is housing. Unfortunately, we have another problem on that side. Uh, if you want to talk about it. Certainly. Yeah. Let's keep going. What's the other problem okay. with housing? So the problem with the housing market is a lack of supply. So we've been tracking, you know, the supply of homes, new homes and existing homes. So I, I looked at the data about two, three weeks back, but the supply of existing homes was less than three months. So unfortunately, what's happened is people have locked in very low rates of mortgage, mortgages over the last two, three years, and therefore they don't want to move out of their homes because they know that if they go to buy a new home right now and sell their old home, um, they're going to be in trouble because they're going to have to take a mortgage at a much higher rate. So people are not moving. There's no new supply of housing with the mortgage rates going up the way they did. Home builders started to pull back a little, you know, so the home industry actually did slow down a lot. But now because it's slowed, slowed down so much, we've come to another sort of problem, which is driving up home prices. And so home builders are back to building again and we're seeing construction activity there and all of that. So it, it's been, it's as if the home cycle got compressed, you know, and, and it went through the cycle very, very quickly. And now it's sort of become very, becoming insensitive to the interest rate rises because of the supply and demand issue. That makes a lot of sense, Aisha. I'd like to take the next chapter of this, all of that being used as context, to talk about the yield curve, uh, because this is certainly uh, something that has been a lot in the news controversially. The yield curve has inverted, or the two-year treasury is paying higher than the 10-year treasury. And a lot of people are quick to point out that it has historically been predictive of a recession of a negative GDP for at least six months of a period. And that's got a lot of people concerned right now, right? We don't like to hear about recessions. It certainly is, mm -hmm. is bad when the economy contracts. But you've also said, I've seen several of your interviews on Bloomberg, you, you have a lot of opinions on the yield curve and also the, the I mean, let, me, let me just leave it at that. What are your thoughts on the yield curve right now and how do you interpret it? Right. So interestingly enough, I pointed out a, uh, coming inversion of the yield curve back in October 2021, okay? And, and I remember this only because I had written about it for Halloween as something being very scary and spooky. Terrifying. Honestly, the costume yeah. of the yield curve is the most scariest one you'll see. <laughs> Little did I know I was going to be right. I didn't want to be right because this is not something you really want to be right on. And okay, so it inverted. And we thought that. That's it. It'll invert it maybe a month, two months, maybe, and then we'll be out of it. But unfortunately, we're seeing one of the longest running inversions in the yield curve in, I think, ever. I, I, don't, I doubt even in the 80s we had such a long running inversion. Um, so, unfortunately, while the yield curve is inverted, it's not such a bad thing. Unfortunately, the bad thing comes when the yield curve starts to steep. So when you invert uh, and then steepen, that's when the problem starts. So as you just saw, um, so I track the yield curve every morning, even in my daily uh, morning news. I have a morning news uh, that I send out to everyone and it's free to read, obviously. Uh, and we track the yield curve there. I track it every morning. And for the last two days, what we're seeing is that the yield curve is steepening. So when you see it steepens, stocks start to go down. 
as long as the yield curve remains inverted, stocks can actually rally. And that's what we've seen over the last six months, right? We've seen a massive rally even with the inverted yield curve. Towards the beginning of the inversion, I believe there was a lot of fear, as you rightly pointed out, that a recession may be coming. But there's nothing that says that stocks can't rally while the yield curve remains inverted. So I think we need to start worrying um, when the inversion stops, when the yield curve starts to steepen. That's when the economy is actually going into a recession or it's like an early recession period. Having said that, about, about that, Aisha, you know, when you're saying steeping, we're saying this might be the Fed cutting rates or trying to relax policy a little bit because it's in response to deteriorating macro. Is that what you're, you're saying when you say it's steeping? It could be either. So it could be that the Fed cuts rates. So the, the uh, uh, two-year rate comes down and the 10-year the stays where it is. So then the curve steepens. Or it could be the other way around where we see 10-year yields just go up, right? And because people are don't have a demand for it. So the whole point is, you know, we will see this happen. And when this does happen, we will see some pain, which is why I still do think that we will see correction in stocks. We are not going to go on a 10-year bull market from here. Um, it, it, we will see a pullback, which will be great, actually, in my opinion, because I think we'll get a great uh, buying opportunity. I think in the last six months, the way the market has moved, We've missed a lot of the opportunities because we were wondering what's happening. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Me personally, I know that I have missed out on some great companies because I was, you know, wondering, are we going to tank? I mean, I don't even know whether we're going to tank tomorrow, whether a recession is coming. It, it, it's a difficult situation. But I think once we get that situation and we get, you know, a meaningful pullback, that would be a great point for all of us to buy uh, stocks at a great price to hold for a while, you know, the investment type stuff that you do. We're here with Aisha Tarek. She is the co-founder of Macrovisor. We're just wrapping up the first section of our program. Where we've taken a 20,000 foot look at the macro. We're going to start talking about stock market opportunities in part two. Come right back as we continue our seven investing podcast. And we're back. Welcome back to our seven investing podcast. I'm here with Aisha Tarek, the co-founder of Macrovisor. You can follow her work at macrovisor.com for insight into the global macro economy. Aisha, we just chatted about kind of what's going on at a higher level out there. We talked about the yield curve. We talked about inflation. Let's talk about now how this is going to impact the stock market. And we certainly know that rising interest rates, all other things equal, means it's a higher discount rate that we're discounting back future cash flows for equities. And of course, that's bad for stock prices. It means they're worth less in present value today. It's generally very negative for stocks when interest rates go up. Uh, you did say that there's a possibility of a correction coming up here. There's a steepening of the yield curve. There's a lot of macro factors that are not very favorable for stocks. But then again, stocks as a term is a very broad-based term. Uh, there are certainly different pockets of the market that will be impacted more by rising rates and all of the macro things that you are seeing than others. What's your outlook on the stock market? Are there pockets that you see opportunities and others that you're avoiding right now? 
Well, absolutely. So even through all of this, I still do like stocks. I mean, that's that's what I look at. I know there are other asset classes that we can look at, and we do. We do look at commodities as well. We look at, you know, bonds. But my focus is still stocks. Um, for now, look, I would really, really look at the defensive sectors because I still think that there's some juice left there. For example, healthcare is one that I've been talking about. And in healthcare, I think the sector I like the best is medtech. Uh, one of the reasons that I like medtech is because, you know, I'm sure everybody's heard this story already, but there's been a lot of pent up demand. And now we see um, the biggest problem with the healthcare sector was a lack of people. So uh, we didn't have uh, workers in the healthcare sector. People were out of jobs because they were scared of COVID or because things had been cut down. There was no demand number of factors, but at least now we're seeing that improve. So with every jobs uh, data that comes out, like what we saw today, you'll see the healthcare number is actually improving every month. And that's great for the healthcare sector. So, and people are now going back to get their elective surgeries and they're going back to get the treatments that they've postponed. And you know what happens when you postpone treatment? Things just get worse. And, you know, stuff that could have been non-surgical, unfortunately, becomes surgical. And so we do see some demand coming into the healthcare sector. And I think medtech is one that can um, benefit from it. I also think there's still some pricing power left in certain defensives. For example, we saw Pepsi, we saw Coke, both of them did really well. We saw McDonald's, they just smashed earnings. They did so well. So I think some of these companies that are less macro intensive in the sense that you will still eat McDonald's, right? And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a company that people will still go to. And in fact, they'll probably go to more in an environment where I can't spend on something that's like extremely expensive. Right. I still want to eat out, but I can't spend like $200 for a meal or I shouldn't be spending $200 for a meal. So, hey, let's go to McDonald's. It's familiar. It's good. It, you know, so I think these are the kind of companies that we should look for at the moment and, you know, try and get some earnings in uh, as much as we can until we actually see that meaningful pullback where we can invest again. Let's open this up and start talking about some other countries around the globe. I'm based here in Texas in the United States. We get hurricanes. You're out in Dubai. You guys get sandstorms, both equally terrible, but you know, your own unique challenges. And let's talk yeah. about how different companies are not all responding to this in the same way. We chat a lot about the United States here, Aisha, but you follow a lot of different companies or countries, excuse me, also. How about another yeah. developed economy, Japan? I know this is one that you have an informed opinion on. How is Japan handling the current macro? So it's very interesting. I, I, I love how interesting the macro is in Japan. I mean, things are moving in a very different direction from what we've seen in the last 30 years. You know, it's totally different now. The stock market is actually doing very well there. And we are bullish on the stock market in Japan. Um, so more than half their companies are trading at less than book value. Did you know that? Wow. That's, yeah, that's insane. So yeah. cheap. And so there's a lot of value there. Right. And with the new policies, with the new central bank government, um, we might we might see some change in policies, but he is an academic. So he's taking things very slowly. 
they did announce some changes, which would mean yields would go up. So interest rates rising, bad for the uh, bad for stock. However, they are putting in policies, so they are still buying bonds there to make sure that this doesn't happen very suddenly. So what he basically said is they would allow the yield to go to one percent. Instead, they started buying as soon as the yield hit. 60 basis points, which is 0.6%. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to measure and make sure that the, the impact is measured, right? And they're seeing inflation now for the first time in three decades. Inflation is good for stocks. We know this. And the kind of inflation that he wants to see before he changes any kind of policies is he wants to see this inflation take hold in a way that it improves wages and it improves consumption in the economy. Again, so consumption improving would mean better GDP, better for stocks, right? So I think that the policies that they're instituting now, they're good for the country as a whole. And anything that's good for the country is good for companies and is good for the stock market, right? So they're trying to help these companies now thrive and do much better. And I still think that, as you rightly pointed out, very cheap. They're still very cheap. But I would just caution against using the ETFs uh, for exposure to the economy. So there is the ETF, which is EWJ. However, this is not currency hedged. So I would caution against you know, using any international ETF that is not currency hedged because then we know the Japanese currency could come down we are not bullish on the currency. We are actually bearish on the currency. So if the currency comes down, it brings the ETF down a little bit, you know? So you'll, you'll get a muted response. There are hedged ETFs, like um, I want to see HEWJ and DXJ. I believe these are the two hedged ETFs. So always try to be hedged or look at the currency before you're going into a country. Certainly. And one of the biggest trends that Japan is, is privy to right now and is really capitalizing on has been AI and hardware and cloud computing. A lot of the components that are going into semiconductors are actually manufactured in Japan. As you mentioned, consumption rising, wages growing, certainly good as a lot of tailwinds uh, in the semiconductor sector that's pretty leveraged to Japan. I, I chatted with a, a, one of Comgest's uh, analysts, Richard Kay, about Japan, who is equally as enthusiastic about the country. They are based in Paris, a uh, European asset mm. manager. I know that you have an opinion about a lot of Europe as well. Um, what's your take on, on Europe? How are they handling the macro right now? So I think, uh, I think Europe is in for something and they know it. So I was watching the ECB uh, uh, press conference after they hiked rates. I was watching Christine Lagarde and she was very clear. She knows that, you know, Euro European industries are interest rate sensitive. They're sensitive to, you know, energy prices as well. And, you know, energy prices are going up. And she made it very clear that, you know, there will be some slowdown in growth. And we've seen that with Europe. So they're ba barely above the 0% mark where the Eurozone is concerned. Germany is at zero. Um, France is growing its debt. They got downgraded as well. So there, I, I think Europe is still a place to be cautious. 
Uh, this time, earnings are coming out a little depressed as well. Not as great as last quarter. Banks are doing fine, obviously, because of the higher interest rate. Uh, but companies, industrials, they are suffering a little bit. Having said that, I think if we could see a point where this actually takes these companies down, so we might have some great buying opportunities in LVMH, in Mercedes, uh, Rolls Royce, so some solid, solid companies in Europe, right? Airbus. Uh, and I, I think, you know, that would be a good time to buy. I agree, Aisha. You know, it's interesting to see, you mentioned a lot of those German automakers, how much they have embraced electric vehicles and are rolling out their next generation <laughs> EV lines. We've seen half a trillion dollars of capital commitments already uh, from all the automakers. A lot from Tesla, oh. but certainly a lot from those European companies that you mentioned there too. Um, let's, let's change gears. I want to talk about two more countries. This is getting a little bit out of the developed world and into some, some spicier national markets, uh, one of which being Brazil. Brazil's mm. been a controversial one here in recent years. What's your thoughts on that country right now? So interesting. They just cut rates. They had their rate decision on Wednesday night, I want to say, uh, Wednesday evening for you in the U.S. Um, so they their rate is, I think, now at 13%, 13-odd percent. And they cut rates by 50 basis points. They were supposed to cut rates by 25, but they cut it by 50 so people were a little surprised at how aggressive they were at cutting rates. But their policies, the, like the policies that they talked about, on the other hand, they talked about, you know, keeping rates high. So even though they're cutting, they're not going to go back to the 5-6% rate. What they are trying to say is that we do, and we do believe there will be more rate cuts this year for them, but I think they will still keep them at a sufficiently restricted level as the central bankers like to put it, right? So I think their rates might settle somewhere around 8 9%. They've done well on inflation, very well on inflation. Um, and some commodity prices going up is actually good for them as well. But with Brazil, I think there are two things that I would like to point out. One is these effects of El Nino, so the weather effects. That affects their country a lot because they do have, you know, commodity supplies. So that's something that we need to keep an eye on. The second thing is obviously oil prices. And I talk about oil prices because the largest holding in their ETF, in the Brazilian ETF that we use, EWZ, uh, is it EWZ? I think so. Um, that one, the biggest holding is Petrobras. And Petrobras is the biggest oil company for them, right? The state oil company. So it moves a lot with oil prices. So that's something that we need to keep an eye on as well. So sometimes, like, for example, they cut rates, but the ETF itself fell because uh, oil prices were down that day. So something to just keep in mind when you're investing in Brazil or through these ETFs. I do want to ask you one more thing about Brazil, Aisha. I know that you have a banking background, and uh, Brazil's financial services industry or sector is kind of yes. fascinating to me. It's been so regulated and you've just had these mega banks for so many decades. It seems like there's a push, at least from a lot of companies, uh, to kind of democratize banking, right? You see the new banks out there, the Mercado Libres out there, the Stone mm -hmm. Coast, they want to make it more accessible for the, for the, mass, the, the mass population. Do you yes. have thoughts on this transition? Is this going well for Brazil or are there kind of growing pains? What are your thoughts on financial services? 
So I think there are growing pains, obviously, and they are not probably going to go mass scale like, you know, developed countries. Um, I think with these kind of countries in general, not just Brazil, politics matters a lot. Obviously, they brought back their old leader um, and he has his own ideas, but he is, my understanding is he's trying to be a man of the people. So he might actually open up these policies a lot more than, you know, the previous uh, president. So I think, as you rightly pointed out, the regulations are very important here, right? So it's not for lack of people wanting it, and it's not for lack of people trying to open these kind of businesses. I think it's all got to do with regulations. I, I know from personal experience, emerging markets always have tighter regulations on the banking sector because of foreign currency reserves, right? We can't have free flow of money in and out of the country because we need to make sure that foreign currency reserves are kept at a certain level. With Brazil, it's easier. They do have a lot of foreign currency reserves compared to most other emerging markets. But at the same time, it's still a weaker currency in many respects. And they still need to make sure that there is some regulation around the free flow of, you know, international money. Fantastic. And then let's hit one more country here. You know, we've, we've hit some good ones, but I think this conversation would not be complete without us at least talking about China. Um, certainly now the second most populous country in the world. India has surpassed it here recently, which is interesting, but China certainly pulls its weight, reflecting the global markets. Um, controversial one, geopolitical risks, a lot of going on in China, but what's your take on the uh, response to the macro right now in China? So ambiguous. China has been so ambiguous for the last, uh, for always, I guess. <laughs> but um, over the last one, one and a half months, I want to say, they've declared so many policies in support of, you know, uh, consumption, in support of the property market, in support of so many things. Unfortunately, we haven't seen implementation. So they're talking about all these supportive policies, but it, they seem to be just headlines. We haven't seen tangible, um, you know, measures being taken to say that, okay, we're cutting these rates or we're increasing those rates or we're pumping this amount of money in or we're doing that. So I think we need to see a little bit more of this. What is not ambiguous about China right now is their growth, right? So their GDP growth, has been slashed to, I want to say, five and a half to six percent. Most of the banks are seeing five, five and a half percent. Now, you might tell me, wow, that's still five and a half percent. True. But China's had a GDP growth of close to nine percent for the last 30 years. I looked at it. The average GDP growth is close to nine percent. So for a country like that, five percent is, you know, really low. It's, it's like low growth for them. So in that respect, I think they really need policies to jumpstart the economy, particularly in certain sectors. Um, one is consumption. So I'll just give you like four quick points about what's happening there. Um, we thought they're going to spend a lot, right, after the COVID reopen, reopening and all of that. Unfortunately, people got scared. They got scared. First, they were scared because COVID was still going around. Then they got scared because of all the negative sentiment in the country. Okay, so there was so much consumer confidence has been 
you know, declining there. And so what people started to do is they started to save more. Right now, they have the highest savings rate that they've had in the last five years. So they're, it's not like they don't have the money. They have the money for consumption, but they are not using it. So we need to put, we need to see some policies where this money comes out of the bank and actually is used to consume goods. The other problem they're having is their local governments have a huge debt burden and interest rates are too high for them. So this, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a complicated situation, but suffice to say that debt burden needs to be restructured uh, or refinanced in such a way that that debt burden can be met by the local government. Otherwise, it's like the local government's going bankrupt. You know, so they can't spend more. As soon as you start spending more in the local governments, you get jobs, you hire people, right? It's always good when there's activity in the country. So overall, the activity in the country is coming down. Youth unemployment is going up. The youth is not employed. And you know that young people need to be employed. You can't just have a really high rate of youth unemployment and expect productivity. So you have low productivity because of high youth unemployment. And then finally, you have the geopolitical situation. <clears throat> they have the property market as well. Everybody knows about the property market. So that's another prob problem as well. So just before we go into the geopolitical, I just want to talk about the property market very quickly. So they, the, their property market is in a situation where people are not buying. And for the longest time, their government said housing is for living, not for speculating. They have pulled that away. So now they want people to buy houses because people are not buying houses. Again, people are saving, but not investing, not buying houses. And so there's a big, big depression in the property market there. The property companies, who are some of the biggest companies in the world, are on the brink of default on their bonds and on their debt because people are not buying properties. So four problems internally in the country. And then you have the fifth problem, which is the geopolitical tension, right? We, even today, I saw some news which said that, you know, the U.S. is thinking about not investing in China or not letting investment, you know, people invest in China from the U.S. So all of these things do matter because it, as, as much as people don't want to take sides, I think some people do, countries do. And, you know, if the U.S. is not friendly with China, even if people don't support the U.S., let's say, they, they just want to be cautious and they'll stay away, right? So what do people do when you see a conflict? Sometimes if you see like two people fighting, you walk away because you just don't want to be part of that fight. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what's happening and you just think like you know what let them resolve it themselves i'm just going to take a step back so i think all of these things combined are actually pulling down china's growth much more than we have anticipated i'm still very cautious in china i know people have started investing again we have seen flows in the last weeks like if you look at the bank you know, they show you the fund flows into China. So you'll see the fund flows are increasing. But I think for 
individuals like us, we should be very, very cautious. I think we should still be careful about the names that we choose because just put China on a chart. Uh, so if you have trading view, just put China A50 on a chart or put the Hang Seng on a chart. Just, you know, zoom out and look at what's happening. You have three days of up, two days of down, three days, of, like it's unpredictable. Every three to two days, you get some news from the government that says we are stimulating the economy. No implementation, just news, right? Just words. And then, so people get like all gung-ho, they buy stuff and all of that. And then two days later, they realize, oh no, this is not happening. And then they come back. So it's a disaster. And so for now, I think until we can get a good handle about what's going on there internally, and they actually start implementing these policies, I would not think of going in just because they're cheap. I think that was incredibly insightful. I think cautious is the right word because China has got a trust issue right now. Everything that you yeah. just mentioned is certainly true. You look at the, the opportunities versus the risks, the opportunities are decreasing. You know, it's not 9% growth anymore. Yes. Now it's 5.5% growth. While those risks seem to be increasing too, right? The relationship with Taiwan, uh, the IP protections. We've certainly seen years ago, everyone was flooding uh, China to do manufacturing, especially in semiconductors, tech industry. And now a lot mm -hmm. of that production is actually moving to Southeast Asia, other countries, Taiwan, Vietnam, other places, because between zero COVID and government sporadic policy, erratic policies, excuse me, um, has scared a lot of manufacturing out of that. And then also biotech, either other industries too, healthcare, China wanted to completely revitalize the healthcare industry. Um, it's just very interesting to see the lack of trust and how that's in, impacted not only at the grander scale, but individual company investment in the country. Go ahead, Aisha. I think you wanted to add something there too, yeah? No, so you're right. Because, you know, even in their own private sector, the government has been unfriendly. It's, for example, with digital transformation, you know, this is a, yet another reason why youth unemployment is so high. Because these youths, they don't want to work in the fields. They don't want to work industrial jobs. They want to work digital, high-fi, you know, ad, you know, maybe ad advertising jobs or, you know, digital jobs, tech jobs. And unfortunately, this industry, and including fintech, by the way, you remember what happened with the Ant IPO. Yeah, We've all been pushed down. Mm -hmm. So until and unless they start to be more friendly towards some of these uh, more advanced, you know, uh, industries, I think we're in for some troubles. There are like four or five companies that are tech type companies and still trying to get through. But, and, and they're good companies. Like for example, there's a company, Pinjojo, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it, PDD is the ticker symbol. It's a great company. They're doing great stuff. I really like this company, but I'm afraid, you know, because every two days there's, there's some kind of policy coming out that stops them from doing what they should be doing or want to do or you know, to enable them to grow. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, it, it's tough to get a handle on China. Um, if we do think about investing, we need to be cautious. So let's not be all gung-ho. Let's I take think that's great advice. Step. And to recap, this is incredibly insightful, but kind of the around the world that we did there, a recap, 
caution with China. Let's not be gung ho, as Aisha says. Uh, we looked at Brazil and we said, you know, it's very exposed to commodity and oil, even though it is cutting rates now back from 13%, a much higher yeah. interest rate than we're used to here in developed markets. We talked about Europe. Aisha pointed out 0% GDP growth for a lot of European countries and a really pretty optimistic uh, portrait for Japan, which is investing and seeing a little bit of inflation that might support wage growth. Anything else I'm missing there, Aisha, as we kind of do this, this around the world recap of the macro? So, uh, UK? We are a little bearish on the UK still because, as I said, they are hiking rates still. Australia is on pause, but again, Australia is another uh, country where inflation still remains significantly high. So I would be cautious with them where we are uh, a little bearish on Australia. Uh, we are bullish on some of the other emerging market countries like Philippines, Indonesia. Um, these countries are doing well. Vietnam, somewhere in between. We're still neutral on Vietnam. We're still neutral on Malaysia. Um, but slowly we are getting more countries to invest in. Um, so as these company, countries come out of their hiking cycle and start to have a handle on inflation, we're bullish on Mexico as well. Uh, Mexico's done a great job, by the way. Their unemployment rate is close to 2%. Their GDP growth, um, we see growth every quarter. Um, they really benefited from the nearshoring, you know, from China being out of reach. So China's loss is Mexico's gain, let's put it that way. They have been on pause with their interest rates. They may cut sometime next year. They're seeing inflation come down every month. So great place to also be. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Well, fantastic. Aisha, this was a very insightful conversation. Thank you very much for being on the 7 Investing Podcast here this morning. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Simon. And for anyone who wants to follow along with more of Aisha's macroeconomic coverage, you can follow her website. It is Macrovisor. That is macrovisor.com. I think that she's got a great pulse on what is going on in the world around us. So thanks very much for listening to this edition of our 7 Investing Podcast. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Have a great week.